One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest began as a novel written in 1962 by American author Ken Kesey. Still in his 20s, Kesey had already written two novels, Zoo and End of Autumn, neither of which made it to print. So when Viking Press decided to publish his third effort, Kesey was more than pleased. And I'm sure he was even more pleased when the book went on to become not just a success, but a phenomenon. Rapidly topping the New York Times bestsellers list, it eventually sold more than 9 million copies in more than a dozen languages. Said you've been belligerent, talked when unauthorized, been resentful in attitude toward work in general, that you're lazy. Chewing gum in class. <laughs> well, the real reason that you've been sent over here is because they wanted you to be evaluated. Yeah. To determine whether or not you're mentally ill. This mm -hmm. is the real reason. Why do you think they might think that? Well, as near as I can figure out, it's because I uh, uh, fight and fuck too much. Kesey's inspiration came from his experience while working at a mental facility in San Francisco's Bay Area. There, he had volunteered to be a subject in a CIA-sanctioned study called Project MKUltra. Funded covertly by the US government, Project MKUltra researched ways in which human behavior could be engineered. In other words, mind control. It included manipulating a person's mental state, altering their brain functions by way of hypnosis, and the administering of drugs such as LSD. Then there was sensory deprivation, sexual abuse, and finally torture. If you saw Leonardo DiCaprio losing his mind in Shutter Island, it is because Dennis Lehane's novel, from which Martin Scorsese's film is adapted, uses Project MKUltra as a springboard for its own plot. They're experimenting on people here. I don't know, boss. How do you believe a crazy guy? That's the beauty of it, isn't it? Crazy people, they're the perfect subjects. They talk, nobody listens. I stood at Doc Al. We, we saw what human beings are capable of doing to each other, right? For Christ's sakes, we, we fought a goddamn war to stop them, and now, now I find out it may be happening here, on our soil? No. Begun in the early 1950s, the MK Ultra program employed Nazi scientists, several of whom had already been found guilty of war crimes at the Nuremberg trials. Not only that, but it is widely believed that one of the aims of the program was to create a Manchurian candidate. So perhaps John Frankenheimer's classic movie from 1962 wasn't that far-fetched after all. Anyway, so covert was MK Ultra that it wasn't until the mid-1970s that it came to public attention. But by then, any investigation into its operations was severely hampered because the resigning head of the CIA, Richard Helms, had all official records of the program destroyed. Is there anybody uh, that you have uh, on your staff that could uh, relate to him, maybe understand him, help him out with some of these problems? Well, the funny thing is that the person that he's the closest to is the one he dislikes the most. <laughs> oh, sure. That's you, Mildred. Well, gentlemen, in my opinion, if we send him back to Pendleton or we send him up to Disturbed, it's just one more way of passing on our problem to somebody else. You know, we don't like to do that. So I'd like to keep him on the ward. I think we can help him. Kesey set his novel in a mental institution where the treatment of the inmates is designed not to help them recover, but to keep them locked up and under very strict control. 
With that critique of authority already in place, Kesey then doubled down on his argument by having as his narrator a Native American Indian, Chief Bromden. Remember, this was the early 1960s when the civil rights movement was gathering momentum and a lot of white America was awakening to the near genocide of an entire people. So, the novel isn't just about mental institutions. It offers a critique of America itself. Here, take the ball. That's it. Hold on to it. Not too hard, Chief. You'll crush all the air out of it. We're going to put her in the basket, you understand? All right, now uh, raise up your arms. Raise the ball up in the air, Chief. Raise it up. McMurphy. What the hell are you talking to him for? He can't hear a fucking thing. I ain't talking to him. I'm talking to myself. It helps me think. Yeah, well, it don't help him then. Well, it don't hurt him either, does it? Don't hurt you, does it, Chief? But there is no narrator in the film. And since he is no longer narrating, Chief Bromden is relegated to being an almost completely passive extra. You see, the film's director, Milos Forman, chose instead to concentrate almost exclusively on another inmate named Randall P. McMurphy. And by refocusing on McMurphy, the film completely excises the wider implications of Kesey's story, which is the reason why Kesey, who had at first enthusiastically collaborated with Foreman, upped sticks and left the production, declaring a complete disgust with the direction in which Foreman wanted to take his story. To which I say, Ken, if that's the way you really feel, you can always send back the check. But Kesey kept the money and instead spent the following decades trashing the film wherever he went. And he went to his grave in 2001, never having even seen so much as a single frame of the movie. This despite the fact that it won near universal acclaim. Was Kesey principled or hypocritical? <laughs> How about it, you creep, you lunatics, mental defectives? Let's hear it for Bull Goose Randall back in action. Nice shirt, Chesaroo. <laughs> Look at the faces on you. Look at you. <laughs> the Fiend Brigade, you gigglings. <laughs> the Mental Defective League in formation. <laughs> How are you, Nurse Ratchet? I'm happy to be back. We're happy to have you back, Randall. As far as I'm concerned, when authors sell the movie rights, they are also giving up the right to complain. Every film alters a novel. It has to. If it doesn't, it's not a movie. And Foreman's film altered a lot of what Kesey wrote. So that discussion is pretty redundant. The more fruitful question is, were the changes any good? Well, what Foreman was going for was a theme that is not wholly dissimilar to another film we've discussed a while ago, The Matrix. The Matrix suggests reality is an illusion from which we must break free, and Foreman's film retains Kesey's message that authority is a ruthlessly efficient machine from which we must escape. However, Kesey went to considerable and rather laborious lengths to depict McMurphy as a sort of Christ-like figure, even telling us the shape on the table in which McMurphy is placed for his electroshock therapy. It is in the form of a crucifix. Foreman wisely excised such details and instead he saw the asylum as something else entirely. Foreman was born in 1932 in what was then Czechoslovakia and having survived the devastating Nazi invasion, he found himself living under the yoke of communism. Foreman fled to the West in the late 1960s and so he saw Cuckoo's Nest as, well, let's listen to the man himself. 
And you know, funny thing was that you know, every, all my American friends were telling me, listen, you know, don't touch, don't, don't go near this book. It's such an Americana. How can you, an immigrant, understand that? You, you? And I said, this is ridiculous what you are saying. This book, for you, it's a literature. But for me, it's life. I lived this book. I lived. The Communist Party was my big nurse. But what Foreman could not do, or simply chose not to do, was address the baseline misogyny of Kesey's work. The ward is run with a velvet fist by Nurse Ratchet, and the sound of her surname cannot be a coincidence. Ratchet has little regard for the patients, and while she appears always dressed in immaculate white, if you look closely at her hairstyle, you will see that she has fashioned two careful curls that sit malevolently above her head. They look like horns. Yes, Nurse Ratchet is a devil whose singular goal is to repress and destroy all individual behaviour, especially sex. While all the men on the ward bemoan their former domestic lives, Nurse Ratchet has no interior life. She functions exclusively as a machine to correct those who do not fit into the programme. If a patient fails this programme or refuses to take part in it, he, and it is always a he, is neutralised. She either medicates the men into docility or she arranges for them to undergo electric shock therapy or brain surgery. Mr. McMurphy, your medication. What's in the horse pill? It's just medicine. It's good for you. Yeah, but I don't like the idea of taking something if I don't know what it is. Don't get upset, Mr. McMurphy. I'm not getting upset, Miss Pilbo. It's just that I don't want anyone to try and slip me salt, Peter. It's all right, Nurse Pilbo. If Mr. McMurphy doesn't want to take his medication orally, I'm sure we can arrange that he can have it some other way. One of her patients, Billy Bibbit, suffers from an appalling stammer, bought on, it is implied, by his henpecking mother, whom, it is also implied, has had him locked away. McMurphy recognises the cause of Billy's stammer and arranges for Billy to lose his virginity with a prostitute, after which Billy's stammer miraculously disappears, only for her to re-emerge when Nurse Ratchet tells Billy that she is compelled to inform to his mother what he has just done. So, there are three types of women in the story. Nurse Ratchet, henpecking mothers and wives, and prostitutes. Oh, there is a fourth. Mac Murphy has been charged with the statutory rape of a teenage girl. Of course, it's true that you went in for statutory rape. That's true, is it not, uh, this time? Absolutely true, but Doc, she was 15 years old, going on 35, Doc, and uh, she told me she was 18. She was uh, very willing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I practically had to take to sewing my pants shut. But uh, between you and me, uh, she might have been 15. Would you get that little red beaver right up there in front of you? I don't think it's crazy at all, and I don't think you do either. So the thing is that for all its supposed criticism of authority, regulations, institutions, order, government and conformity, the real rage that lurks at the heart of Cuckoo's Nest is the hatred of women. How's it going, Mac? Perfect, Billy boy, absolutely perfect. They uh, was giving me 10,000 watts a day, you know, and I'm hot to trot. Next woman takes me on, gonna light up like a pinball machine and pay off in silver dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but what really amazes me is how the film came to be such a success. Not only did it win the Oscars Big Five, Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Actor and Actress. It also went on to earn, in today's money, 
close to half a billion dollars at the American box office. Such success and popularity hardly tallies with an ending that is profoundly, and I mean overwhelmingly, depressing. How did that happen? A lot of people will tell you that the story is the myth of heroic defeat. Heroic defeat has been with us well before Greek mythology, but it was the Greeks who gave us the tragic hero. Cuckoo's Nest presents McMurphy as a tragic hero, but Cuckoo's Nest is not the myth of heroic defeat. The myth here is the one spun by all repressive institutions that you must lay down your life for your principles. Freedom is an ideal worth dying for. And isn't that convenient? The rebels die, the revolution is suppressed, and the only thing that survives is the idea of freedom. And that idea is allowed to live on only so long as it does not really threaten the repressive authority. Talk about a matrix.